0: To deconstructing Yourself, the podcast for modern mutants interested in mindfulness, meditation, awakening, and more. My name is Michael W. Taft, your host on the podcast, and this is a very special episode celebrating Deconstructing Yourself's one-year anniversary. When I started this podcast, it was just three long conversations that I had recorded with the amazing Kenneth Folk. Because of my background in audio production, I edited them together, added some introductions and music, and with the help of my friend, the talented engineer, Stephen McNamara, I published them online. People generously volunteered the artwork for the program and also greatly assisted me with the technical difficulties I had at the outset. And they were many. I couldn't have gotten through that without many people's help, so thank you very much takes an internet, as they say. Turned out that the program was a big hit. The feedback I got was overwhelmingly positive, not only in terms of verbal reviews and ratings, but also in the many conversations I've had with people in the last year who heard one of the episodes and were excited to talk to me about it. Personally, that's been a real source of, to use some Shenzhen speak, pleasant emotional sensations. So this is now the 20th episode of Deconstructing Yourself. And for this one-year anniversary, I'll be in conversation with Shinzen Young. Shinzen Young is an American mindfulness teacher and neuroscience research consultant, doing crazy things to his own brain. His systematic approach to categorizing, adapting, and teaching meditation, which is known as unified mindfulness, has resulted in collaborations with Harvard Medical School, Carnegie Mellon University, and the University of Vermont in the burgeoning field of contemplative neuroscience. You can learn more about Shinzhen on his website, shinzhen.org. And now, without further ado, I give you the episode that I call, Why Good Teachers Go Bad. Today we're going to talk
1: about a new exciting book called Homology Theory, for dummies. <laughs> <laughs> That's the book I want to see. Yes. Uh, <laughs> nice.
0: Okay, dare I ask, what is homology theory? It is one of the
1: greatest discoveries of mathematics. When you look at the history of mathematics, one way to think about it is, over and over again, across the cultures of the world and through the centuries there has been an interplay almost like a male female relationship or a significant other relationship between geometry the investigation of space and let's just call it algebra let's put it this way geometry is the investigation of space like things And algebra is the investigation of number-like things. So numbers have structure based on operations, but they have other structures. They have order structures. And space has its structure based on many things. (laughs) So these two investigations have aided each other over and over again in many different ways in the development of mathematics. But they've also interfered with each other. They've caused mathematicians to have limited points of view because they were overly interested in either the algebraic flavor of math or the geometric flavor of math. If you get too caught up in geometry, you fail to have imagination in algebra and the other way around. Mostly, they've aided each other, and not in just one way, many, many ways. But it is also interesting how they have caused people to have limited views. For example, well, we could go on and on, but just one example, very anciently, the Greeks excelled in geometry, but they never quite nailed the richness of number. They had a really limited concept of what number is. In India, they never developed the depth and rigor of the Greek axiomatic approach, but they were much more imaginative as to what a number can be. That's why we have zero. (laughs) Zero was not a number to the Greeks, Negative numbers were not numbers to the Greeks. So, anyway, it isn't always that they have helped each other, but mostly they've helped. Now, I would make a metaphor in another domain. I would say that we might be looking at the beginning of contemplative practice and empirical science, potentiating each other. (laughs) So, if you have two deep domains and suddenly a new connection is discovered, then that may lead to something really, really new. For example, in the case of mathematics, thanks to Fermat and Descartes and others, that the graphing of numerical functions, that made calculus much more easy to develop. If they hadn't done that, there wouldn't be any calculus. So a whole new direction came out of that interaction. And I would draw an analogy between that, things like that, and what I hope will happen here now in our time, which is a natural relationship between empirical science and contemplative practice is discovered and they start to reinforce each other. And just like graphing functions led to something entirely new, unpredictable. and something that couldn't have been predicted. Calculus and its generalization into analysis. You have so many kinds of analysis, real, complex, vector analysis, differential equations, tensor, uh, calculus, etc this whole field just opened up. Functional analysis, oh my God. This whole world opened up, but that interplay was needed. So I would make an analogy between that and the interplay between contemplative practice and empirical science and what new directions might be found. So you notice that I just made an analogy. I said, geometry and algebra, okay, they can come together and maybe something completely new comes of that. And I'm drawing an analogy between that and contemplative practice and empirical science. Suddenly, a relationship is discovered and something new can come of that. So, we're making an analogy here. You follow what I'm saying, right? Yes. So, the homology theory is one of the latest and greatest ways in which geometry and algebra have found a natural relationship. And it's based on analogy. So let's say that we have two geometrical objects and there's a relationship between those two objects. And let's say that we have uh, two classes of algebraic objects, and there's a relationship between those classes. Homology is based on the notion that there's a natural relationship between those relationships. (laughs) So, anyway, you asked.
0: And so, what homologies are you seeing between contemplative practice and science? I think in
1: that case we would say, what parallels am I seeing, or analogies? Well, the contemplative practice and science interaction can be looked upon in terms of a couple getting together and deciding to have a family. (laughs) Let's use that metaphor. We're going to get married. And I know not every couple is, you know heterosexual, but let's just use that metaphor. So, we're going to get together and have some kids. So, there's something that one of the partners brings to the table that supplements or aids the other partner. And conversely, that's how I think about the dance of empirical science and contemplative practice. So a natural way to discuss it is what does science bring to the table that can aid contemplative practice? What does contemplative practice bring to the table that can aid science? And what kind of children might come out of this union that would represent a new direction, just like calculus was a new direction born in between, roughly speaking, geometry and algebra, but was something new. So, that's the way I think about it. And then people listening to this can sort of think for themselves. Well, what's the nature of empirical science? What's the nature of contemplative practice? So, we want to know sort of what those things are, how to think about those things, And then, once we have a clear idea of how to think about those two things, we can start to think about how they might mutually aid each other. So, it's like I see there's two shiny balls, and there's what each one of those balls is, (laughs) and then there's an arrow that goes from science to meditation, and here's what I bring to the table— There's an arrow that goes from meditation to science. Hey, here's what I bring to the table. Then we look at that, and then we can think about where all of this might lead. So I don't know how much detail you want me to go into. I have an hour talk on how I organize the concept of science. And of course, I have a gazillion hours of talk (laughs) about how I organize the uh, concept of contemplative practice. I think you're probably more interested in the relationship thing.
0: One of the things that interests me the most is some material that actually the first time we talked about it, you and I were working together on the Science of Enlightenment book. I was asking you some questions, and this was probably 10 years ago now, but I was asking you some questions about it, and we got some material that never made it into that book, but I thought it was a shame because it's very fascinating. And it has to do with specifically one little subsection of the ways that contemplative practice and Western empirical science can help each other. And that was the subsection dealing with the role of the teacher and the role of the community and how Western ideas about openness of information and sharing, you know, the scientific ideal of sharing information and also the role of authority, you know, in science. So I'm curious what you would say about that, because a lot of questions I'm hearing lately have to do with reimagining Eastern contemplative models of the teacher-student relationship, and also the kind of open-source dharma, in quotes, that we're seeing everywhere exploding right now. So I'm curious what you would say about that.
1: Well... I like to say, for the pure shock value, that in some ways, scientists have less ego than meditation masters. <laughs> <laughs> now notice, I said in some ways. I didn't yet say in what ways, and I didn't you know, say how broad <laughs> or deep that might be, but in some ways... Scientists have less ego than meditation masters.
0: Shinzhen tell me, how do so that, scientists have less ego than meditation <laughs> masters? <laughs> that gets people's attention, right? <laughs> but I believe it, and
1: I think it's important for the meditating community to appreciate that and model itself after science. Follow science's lead here. So remember, it's all about What does science bring to the table? What does contemplative practice bring to the table? So one of the things that scientists can teach meditation teachers is how to have less ego. Now it's also true that meditation can help scientists have less ego, but these are different ways of having less ego. If scientists become meditators, In broad and deep ways, there'll be a reduction of ego, and that will help science grow better. But what's good for the goose is good for the gander. There's one specific way, but it's significant, if we're interested in moving forward. There's one significant way in which the model of science needs to be brought into the teaching world in meditation. And I would apply this to all teachers, meaning actually to all meditators, because I think of teacher as very broad. Basically, everyone who practices is a teacher, whether they know it or not. They teach in subtle ways. You don't have to hang out a shingle that says, you know, I'm going to give Dharma talks and guide you in techniques to be a teacher. Anyone who practices will experience the impact of that practice. And that sends out a subtle teaching. Now,
0: I presume you are not uh, uh, using the word subtle as in the Sanskrit, sukshma, where you're talking about energy vibrations or...
1: You no, know, I'm meaning... Low intensity of signal. (laughs) Well, some parts are obvious and some aren't. There's really two parts to the subtle teaching. One is not necessarily obvious to people, it may be just subliminally or marginally detected. And that's the impact of your vibe as a meditator. If you're around someone that's all fucked up, you sort of feel fucked up a little bit. And if you're around someone who's defucked, somewhat, you may or may not feel a little bit defucked, um, and so that would be the a kind of subtle impact. But because this practice is not just about feeling good, but it's about doing good. People that do this practice, they go through positive behavior changes, and those are definitely noticeable to the people around
0: them. It's like visible, apparent defunctness.
1: Yeah, well, particularly in behavior, it's like, you know, they used to be this way, and now they're that way, and that's an improvement. So, people around a successful meditator notice positive behavior changes, and that's usually above the threshold of awareness. So that's something that is noticeable and they may comment on it. Everyone around a meditator experiences subtle impact from the vibes, I guess you would say. There's just something different. You smell different. You move different. You sound different. But that difference may not be consciously detected by the people around you. Or it may be subliminally detected. There's a something, but they can't quite pin down what that is, but it's nice. What's really important for the meditator, though, is that each person you interact with, some of them may actually notice your vibe consciously. Some of them may sort of semi-consciously notice it. Many of them don't notice it at all. However, from the viewpoint of the meditator, you are aware that you're putting out that energy. Regardless of how conscious or unconscious the impact of that energy is on each person that you interact with, and this even goes to animals and things. Regardless of that, you as the meditator consciously, in real time, all day, in every interaction, regardless of the nature of the interaction, however intense or trivial that interaction may be, however long or short it may last, you know that you're delivering that subtle teaching. And that becomes a source of immense fulfillment.
0: Now, what do we make, then, of so many advanced meditators who have some real, let's say, unskillful behaviors still in their repertoire of behaviors?
1: Well, that's another topic. Shall we put a pin in it and
0: complete this
1: idea? Yes. And then revisit that? So I define teacher as very broad. So as soon as this practice impacts you, you're a teacher, <laughs> in my way of thinking. Now, usually we think about teacher as someone who explicitly teaches, they give talks, they give people meditation techniques and help them apply those techniques to issues of their life and so forth. That's sort of the level of explicit teaching. And that goes from paraprofessional, you know, you just sort of started teaching, to a trained paraprofessional, you took a facilitator training training. Or a teacher training, maybe even got a certification, to what I call professional. Now, my definition of a professional teacher is not necessarily that they teach full-time for their livelihood, although that is often the case. But when I think about a professional meditation teacher, which would be analogous to a doctor or a lawyer... What characterizes a professional meditation teacher is that they have the ability to lead people to all the goals that a person might have for practice. Specifically, they know how to lead people to and through enlightenment experience, no self, and they know how to lead people through making behavior changes based on mindfulness practice. I usually start talking to people about their practice. If it's a new person, I'll say, what are your goals? What do you want? And I have confidence that no matter what they tell me, I can help them get there. If they say, I'm an alcoholic and I want to recover, I know what to do. But it won't only be mindfulness in that case. I know what to do with mindfulness, but I'll also make sure that they've looked into an accountability and support structure for behavior change, etc. So a lot of times people say, I want stream entry. (laughs) I say, great. (laughs) Some other teachers might say, oh, well, you know, you don't want to want that. That's like too much or... uh, Etc., etc. But someone says, I want to become a stream enter. I say, Great, got it. Here's where we'll start. (laughs) So a professional has a track record. They consistently are able to lead people through all the goals of the practice, including the goals around behavior change and classical awakening. So, there's this whole range of teaching. As soon as the practice impacts you, you're teaching (laughs) to you're a, a professional teacher. So, broadly speaking, what can meditation teachers learn from science? In what way does the scientist have less ego than a master? Let's say a very senior professional would be a master, That's someone that's very close to complete cutting of the limited identity with the mind and body. So, a profound, deeply liberated master, like the Zen masters that people study with and so forth. Think 80-year-old Roshi. (laughs) Think the Chinese masters that I've met that sat on a mountain for 30 years without any protection And didn't lie down for the whole 30 years. I've met people like that. People that can sit for three days like I sit for three minutes. So that would be like master, right? (laughs) I guess that's a special case of professional. (laughs) So all of the teachers, but particularly the ones that may be in the professional or master professional category, what can they learn from science, from the culture of science, the way science works? What they can learn is to participate happily in uncensored but respectful dialogue aimed at improving the field. I think that may be the phrase. Uncensored but respectful dialogue aimed at improving the field. As opposed to, I'm a master, I have the answers, and if we're in a dialogue, the goal is for me to convince you that you're not as enlightened as I am because you don't formulate things correctly the way I do. Now, at the risk of being unrespectful, When you read the Buddhist scriptures, you see the Buddha dialoguing with lots and lots of teachers, not just one or two, many other teachers, people that had their own communities and followings and formulations. But every single one of those interactions is portrayed in the Buddhist scriptures in a similar way he shows them the errors of their way. Either they leave convinced, oh, I see, now I've got it right, thank you. Or they get pissed off and (laughs) walk away. (laughs) Or sometimes they'll say, well, maybe, (laughs) okay. But usually he shows them how there's something wrong with their formulation and his is a better one. Usually that's the form. So, that becomes the template for the way dialogues are supposed to occur, which is you have one teacher, you have a deeper teacher, and the purpose of the dialogue is for the deeper teacher to show the less deep teacher their mistake. And so, how the dialogue is conceived of is really quite different. That's the model that's given. Now, The fact is, though, that even within Buddhism, even within a specific lineage of Buddhism, like Theravada, different Vipassana teachers have different formulations. Now, since the idea is that someone's right and deeper, what they basically do is they don't dialogue, because it's not in the paradigm to dialogue, okay?
0: If you dialogue with somebody, the presumption is one person must be deeper.
1: That's the model that's been given. So, the practical consequence of this is that each teacher creates their own fiefdom. The students follow them, and they don't dialogue respectfully, but in an uncensored way, With a goal that out of this dialogue, something new and better could arise, that's not the model.
0: It reminds me of the old Chinese martial arts movies, where, you know, the two martial arts teachers have their schools and their students, and when they meet, they have to fight it out, and whoever wins gets all (laughs) the students of the other teacher.
1: Yeah. So, this peer-to-peer, uncensored but respectful dialogue, and I think I would put another adjective on there, uncensored, respectful, and unhurried dialogue with a goal to improve the field, peer-to-peer, that's never been part of the model. Well so what? That's the past. We don't have to follow the past. We can get a lesson from science. We can improve by seeing how the scientists do it. Now, the way the scientists do it is that they do carry on this kind of dialogue, a dialogue that's uncensored, respectful. They have to be collegial. They have to be, yeah, nice. If they're not, the science culture will somewhat criticize them. So they carry on this kind of dialogue, and it also has to be unhurried. That's important, because if you think that the interaction with the teacher, this peer-to-peer dialoguing, peer-to-peer means that the teachers are roughly at the same level of professionalism. If you think that you only have an hour or 90 minutes for this, you won't get anywhere. Or I won't say you won't get anywhere, but you could easily fall into the older paradigm of, I've just got a little time here to make my point. There's not the leisure to see where you may be off or to take the time that it takes to disambiguate the language. Oh, my God. Because each teacher develops their idiolect. A lot of the problems are in the languaging. And to disambiguate that languaging takes a long time. Hours and hours, days, weeks. So, if the dialogue is going to be like, hey, we only have this much time, then you're going to fall into that other pattern of, I need to prove my point here. As we're talking, it's becoming a little clearer to me how to state the issues. There's a kind of dialoguing that takes place in science, peer-to-peer. It has some characteristics when done according to the canons of the culture of science. The canons of the culture of science say that it should be collegial, Obviously, it's going to be uncensored because you have ideas that you want to express. And it should be not rushed by a concern for, yeah, by time constraints. So, sort of an ongoing thing. And first and foremost, the single most important thing is that scientists have been trained to have a loyalty to the field as something that evolves. And so in the most idealized cases, and of course I'm not saying it's always the case at all, okay but in what science holds as an ideal, what both scientists are aiming for is to improve the field. There's a concept that the field can be improved. That's part of the power of science. It just gets bigger and deeper and stronger and bigger and deeper and stronger with the passage of time, which makes it a juggernaut, a force that cannot be stopped. The only thing that can stop that force would be a catastrophic collapse of human civilization. So barring that, It's just gonna get bigger and deeper and stronger and bigger and deeper and stronger. I know there are anti-science forces, but the future does not belong to them. (laughs) The only way anti-science forces can win is if there's a catastrophic collapse of human civilization. We're back to the old stone age. Otherwise, no wonder there's an anti-science backlash because science just gets bigger, deeper, and stronger monotonically. Anyway, I got a little off topic. So, the kind of dialogue that happens peer-to-peer, ideally in science, I don't know if it's ever happened in the meditation field. But there's another riff here. The same quality of dialoguing. We're uncensored, but we're respectful, and we're interested in improving the field. Oh, by the way, of course, the field is improved only through logic and evidence, no other criteria. That same dialogue also applies to the interactions between senior scientists and junior scientists, including the most senior scientists and very junior scientists. So I have been in conferences where there was a Nobel laureate scientist, so that's your highest level uh, the most senior scientists. There'll be a Nobel laureate scientist who gives a presentation, and there'll be some graduate student, or maybe even an undergrad in the audience, stands up and challenges it with logic and evidence. And that senior scientist has to just listen and then respond with logic and evidence. And it's hard for me. The meditation world didn't have this kind of dialoguing peer-to-peer. What to say, this kind of dialoguing teacher-to-student. So I would advocate that we role model on science. And perhaps one of the fundamental differences that we need to address is science has a notion of evolution. The field improves. And scientists are inculcated into a value system of improving the field. And yes, of course, they have ambition and they have ego and they can be mean-spirited and there can be competition and personal hatreds, and blah, 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 of course. But every one of them is trained to think in terms of the kind of dialoguing I'm describing. They're trained from the get-go to think that way. So, the culture of scientific dialogue should become part of the culture of meditation teachers, I would say, across the board so that's one of the ways that's one of the things that science can give to the meditation world what can the meditation world give to science that's analogous would be well remember i said that in the ideal case scientific dialoguing works this way but then i mentioned all sorts of human foibles and frailties and imperfections that enter in. So, there's a way that scientists have less ego, and we meditation teachers should learn that. But there's a gazillion ways that meditation teachers have less ego, (laughs) and those are different from the ways that the scientists have less ego. And it complements, it's perfect. If the scientists learn the getting out of the ego components that the meditation masters have, then their science dialoguing will be even better and will move the field forward even faster and analogously on the teacher's side. So that's what I mean by along many dimensions, we can analyze the relationship that is developing that's analogous to a relationship between two people. We can analyze it in terms of, okay, here's what one can do for one, here's what the other can do for the other. Along this particular dimension, there are flavors of ego that have never been addressed in the history of contemplative practice, and there are different flavors of ego that have never been addressed in the history of science. And meditation can give the scientists the freedom they need. And science as a model can give the meditation teachers the freedom they need. And as the result of that, science will move forward more rapidly because now it has the best of both worlds. And contemplative practice will evolve more rapidly because now it has the best of both worlds. So, it's almost a perfect complementarity.
0: That's very fascinating. We put a pin in the conversation earlier on the subject of teachers, where you were talking about behavior change that becomes very visible and evident to some of the people around a practitioner. And for me, that brings up a very relevant question about the behavior of advanced teachers that we've seen, at least in Western society, over the past, let's say, 40 years Daniel Ingram and I were just talking about this at length in an earlier podcast and, you know, just kind of lamenting how much, let's just say, behavior there's been from very, very advanced teachers. And so this would seem to make the opposite point from what you're making, that as someone gets more advanced, their behavior improves dramatically dramatically. I've seen that, you know, this is the source of the famous, like, spouse test, right? If your spouse says you're less of an asshole now, then everyone really knows, you know, your practice is working. Is that a phrase? The spouse test? Um, you know, I, it should be. I call it the wife test, but I'm, I'm trying to make it neutral in terms of yeah, gender. Yeah, more, less, <laughs> yeah, yeah right. less
1: of a certain type, yeah. The spouse test, yeah. Or the family test might be a further generalization.
0: That's a big one. If you can go to Thanksgiving and hang out with your family at dinner. and
1: <laughs> You know, there's a cartoon to that effect. Have you yes. seen that cartoon? <laughs> but you might want to explain it. Yeah, but family test might be the best term because it's even broader. Maybe we should start this term.
0: I like the one that uh, Vince of uh, Buddhist Geeks, Vince Horn, was telling me the other day, because I was describing the family test, and he's like, well, there's a bigger one, which is the millennial test. What does that mean? It's a joke, because the idea is that millennials have to move back in with their family, not just, you know, hang out with them at dinner.
1: Is that the way it works, that they don't make it in the world?
0: Well, there's no and, there's no jobs anymore, so millennials are required to move back in.
1: Oh, I see. I think that comes under the broader rubric <laughs> of family tests, because
0: But it's kind it's of the ultimate family, version. Right? It's not just one day at Thanksgiving dinner, you're now stuck. Ah uh, yes, yes. So why don't you describe the
1: cartoon I've been talking about? Um,
0: I'm not sure I can describe it. I'm blanking on what it is all of a sudden. Oh, oh okay. I may be
1: modifying it a little bit, but the disciple goes to the master and says, I'm ready for the next level of enlightenment. That's like (laughs) the first panel. And then the second panel is... It's a guy, and, oh, he was a renunciate in the first panel, right? A shaved head, blah, blah, blah. Now, he's got hair, he's got kids, a family. They're at the dinner table, the kids are whining, the in-laws are fetching. and the thought blurb is, oh, no! <laughs> is that the next level of enlightenment is that he had to have a family and, you know, deal with the job stresses and uh, all the things that normal people have to deal with. And, of course, there's actually a tradition to that very effect. In Zen, after you complete your 10 or 15 years of monastic training, they make you go out and do ordinary
0: things. Something similar exists in Vajrayana tradition as well. Yeah.
1: So... Let's call it the family test. Uh, I like that. So first, I think we need to place things within a context, a big picture context. That's maybe the first step in answering your question of why is there so much bad behavior. Look at the big picture would be a first step and then explain the causes of the bad behavior and what needs to be done to eliminate those causes. What measures need to be taken to prevent these problems? So, big picture-wise, it's important to assess the impact of practice on all the practitioners. So, while it may be true that certain masters who are very prominent publicly had egregiously unacceptable behavior. While that is true, and we'll go into why that happens, it is also true that for every master there are thousands of practitioners. And so if we average over all practitioners, you'll see a very strong statistical tendency away from bad behavior and towards good behavior. So, I think it's easy to lose that sort of statistical perspective. So, that's number one.
0: Then... So, you're saying that, yes, we do have some examples of almost like flagrantly bad behavior that's High profile and that people can criticize, but that if we look at the number of human beings that have been positively affected by their meditation practice, it is much larger. Is that what you're saying?
1: That's correct. I would imagine. We don't have those statistics, but I would guess that that is the case. Now, that's an interesting how you phrased it high profile, flagrant flagrant misbehavior would be, uh, would sum it up, wouldn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah, and especially high-profile flagrant misbehavior by people who presumably are at the highest level of development or, you know, the highest achievable level of development in this field, in the meditation field, in their spiritual progress. And thus, presumably, not only are they not, you know, jerks at Thanksgiving dinner, But they're not, let's say, molesting their students or doing financial misdealings with their students or uh, abusing their power, physical abuse. All this kind of very, very obviously unacceptable behavior, not just, you know, able to be polite when emotions are difficult. So that would seem to somehow totally negate any possible idea of this practice doing anything good.
1: Yeah. So, the phrase, there's something terribly wrong with this picture comes to mind.
0: Yes. I think we can all agree on
1: that. <laughs> so, since my thing is analysis, I would analyze this and then suggest prophylactic measures. But I would still say that if you averaged over all practitioners, if we could perform some sort of hypothetical you know, perfect statistical analysis, we would find that the great preponderance of the impact of the practice is that people do improve. It's certainly been my experience.
0: And mine as well. So then,
1: why do we have this thing that is so confusing to people and causes people, with very good reason? to be skeptical of the whole endeavor. Okay, usually when you have a flagrant situation, when you look at the cases, right? We can take a dozen of the most egregious scandals. You will find that there are always certain factors that are lacking, and there can be certain factors that are present that I think are the causes, meaning that if you get rid of some of the things that are present that cause these situations, and you supply some of the things that are lacking that cause these situations, that these situations won't happen nearly as often. Notice that I said nearly as often. You might think that I would have said we can prevent it completely. But there may be a built-in thing that we may or may not be able to overcome. As I'm talking, I think maybe we can overcome it. But I think there's a general reason why these things happen. I'm organizing my thought as we're speaking, I think you can hear that, because we're definitely not rehearsing here. So I think that there is um, a general force that creates this, and then there are more specific forces. And those specific forces can be analyzed into things that are present and things that are lacking. But I do think it's important to address the general force. The general force means a force that causes high-profile masters to misbehave in all human endeavors, all of them. So this is not limited to the meditation field. There's a, a general force. Because we see it in business now, don't we? And we see it in the political world, don't we? Something similar. People that are at the pinnacle of their profession behaving badly. The general force is that certain types of personality tend to rise to the top. Psychopathic personalities. By psychopath, I don't mean serial killers. I mean a certain kind of very charming but manipulative person.
0: Yeah, the sociopath rises to the top. And there was a study that seemed to suggest that of very successful CEOs, it was possible that a very large number, a very large percentage, as much as 25% of them, would be rated as sociopaths. Were they to be tested? Now, I think there's some disagreement about that statistic, but that's a very compellingly large number. If it's even remotely true, it says something very important. So
1: I think this can lead to an optical illusion because you tend to think that flagrant misbehavior by people that are at the top of the pyramid only happens in the meditation world, but it happens in the world. And the fact that it happens in the meditation world is a consequence of the fact that it has, Or one of the factors, I'm not claiming this is the only factor, I'm going to go through a big list, but one of the factors is that this is in general true of organizations, of cultural institutions. The phrase the really big shit floats to the top. I think there's something to that effect. There's some phrase along those lines. Once again, it's a matter of remembering the big picture. So big picture-wise, I think the bulk of the changes that people go through are very positive. If you look at everyone, averaged over long periods of time, many, many people. Then there's the fact that in several domains of human culture misbehavior by people at the top is a feature. So already we're sort of giving a larger context. But that larger context, as I say, I'm not trying to sweep anything under the uh, rug here. There are also very specific things that are specific to the meditation world that lead to these problems. And by recognizing them, we can deal with it much more effectively. When you look at the situations where the problems develop, they usually have certain characteristics. There are things that are lacking and things that are present that would be causal factors. I'm going to let you say what you think some of those things would be And I'll see if I have anything to add to the list.
0: One of the things that always occurs to me is that human beings are social creatures. We evolve to work together in groups. And we, as part of that, need a high level of feedback from peers in order to function properly. I think that humans left without peer feedback tend to veer off into their private echo chamber of their own mind and without ever hearing the word no, start little by little by little to think that things that previously they thought were not okay might be okay. And sometimes this is almost humorously not important. You see uh, dictators in countries who do a lot of very unfunny things. But one of the things that we see often is that they start to have incredibly odd choices in haircut and clothing and home decor and so on. It just gets weirder and weirder to the point where it's almost humorous. And I think part of that is just they never hear that any of their ideas are bad and They've lost that kind of human feedback loop. And I think I see it in the way that spiritual groups structure their teaching where the masters are basically not allowed to be criticized. The master is right. And everything the master does that normally would be considered to be incorrect or bad behavior is pawned off as some kind of teaching. Oh, well, they're just trying to make you uncomfortable to see how you react or whatever. And so over a long period of time, high-level teachers don't get the kind of normal feedback that any human being needs about their behavior in order to stay on track. To me, that's one big reason.
1: I would totally concur. That is the first thing on my list. I call it a feedback channel. And I would also broaden it a little bit to say that... Keeping the feedback channels open is something that not only the masters have to have, but also every human being has to have. Some people are concerned, for example, that as mindfulness goes mainstream, the ethical dimension of its culture of origin, to wit, Buddhism, is... <laughs> which definitely has Sheila, okay, definitely has an ethical dimension, that that ethical dimension will be lost because mindfulness is being sold as just an attentional skill set. Now, I think that's a legitimate concern, but the first thing on the list of things we need to do to prevent the loss of the ethical dimension as mindfulness goes mainstream, is not to give people a list of rules. That's not the first thing to do, but rather to make sure that that person has feedback channels open on their behavior. And then when they get feedback, to show them how to use mindfulness to make the behavior changes needed that they're getting feedback on. So for all people, all human beings, I think the first thing that needs to be addressed if we want people to be good people is not the endless debate and argument about what's good and what's not good. There's a place for that. I'm not saying there's no place for that. But arguing about what's right and wrong is not first on the list. It's there, but it's down. First on the list is personally and institutionally, and using institution in a very broad sense here, personally and institutionally are the feedback channels to me open. And by the way, I would broaden it somewhat so that it includes peers, because yes, we can easily want to exclude peers because we have to listen to peers. (laughs) You know, they're serious. If a couple other teachers that have been in the game as long as me tell me there's something wrong with me, that's like serious shit, right? And by the way, that's happened in my career, Thank God.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about one of
1: those? Yeah, but let's put a pin in it because I would happily, but I don't want to get too off topic here because we're into some interesting stuff. So are the feedback channels from peers open, but also are you willing to listen to people that aren't peers? Are you willing to listen to a beginning student who tells you that was a crummy Dharma talk, for example? So making sure that on a personal level and also in terms of institutional structure, those feedback channels are open for your whole life so you can get a consensus from a lot of different kinds of people about how you're carrying yourself in the world, that's first on the list. Absolutely. And then... If that structure is there and is maintained, you're going to know what needs to be changed. And then your mindfulness teacher can say, okay, for this behavior change, try this strategy. For this, try this strategy. So, yes, that's the first thing on my list. Can you think of other things that are either present or absent in these scandalous situations that could be addressed?
0: Maybe this is just a different case of the same idea, but the thing that occurs to me is that the spiritual traditions tend to have a concept of awakening that says that if you've had this, it's permanent in some way, and you are unassailably vindicated in your choices and behaviors. You have become perfect, and therefore your behaviors are perfect. And it's a static state in which you can never fall back from. And with that, as part of the tradition, you get into the situation with teachers where people are so deferential and so ready to accept anything they say as essentially the Word of God that they are allowed to do anything. And the students and people around them will not ever call them on it. Now, to me, that is a case of feedback channels, but I think it's, it's based, based on, on a concept context concept. And, a cont- yeah. and a concept. Yeah, Yeah, I think
1: this does come under the more broad category of the feedback channels. But if I had to put some words to it, I think maybe I would say an unrealistic paradigm about what meditation delivers. In other words, to make it tangible, the belief that a liberated person doesn't make mistakes is just wrong. And so, then the corrective is for the teachers to know that they can make mistakes, and I don't care how liberated you are, you can make mistakes. Because I saw horrible mistakes, made by the most liberated person I ever encountered. And I certainly know for myself that I constantly make mistakes. So there are certain concepts. And one of the concepts is that liberation entails doesn't make mistakes in judgment and so forth. And it's just not true. But there's another concept that I think is perhaps even more pernicious, which is only present in some traditions. And that's the concept that if you function from a place of emptiness, there's no fixated somethingness of self, number one. And number two, you truly love everyone deeply love everyone, everyone, and you function from emptiness consistently. There are teachings that say, explicitly say, that anything you do is okay. Doesn't matter. That's the crazy wisdom tradition. And that's also the whole, well, everything is about expansion and contraction, so... Evil is just contraction. Good is just expansion. And it's okay to be evil a little bit, truly evil a little bit, because that's just the way the universe works. And my evil is just part of the cosmic perfection. Those kinds of teachings, I think, are pernicious, dangerous. And they have been criticized Historically, from within the Buddhist tradition, this shit has happened before. Look at the teaching of Zong Mi, who I think was probably a Tang dynasty or Song dynasty master. He roundly criticized the Chan teachers of his time for exactly this, what I'm describing, that belief, that teaching. So the crazy wisdom thing, I think it's just a bad idea. That's one of the things that's present in some of the problematic situations.
0: These conditions where you don't have feedback channels open, and you may even have a teaching that, hey, it's all good, I'm empty, I'm in contact with emptiness and totally awake, so everything I do is somehow a miracle of love for the world. This is just an obvious setup for disaster.
1: Yes, what's hard for people to wrap their head around is, you notice I said you're functioning from emptiness and you truly, deeply love everyone you come in contact with? I'm saying they are that way. The people that have done these bad things are actually that way. Because you might think, no, they can't possibly be that way and do this bad shit but it's been my experience that you absolutely can be that way. And to repeat, that way means two things. They do not experience themselves or the world in a very objectified way. It just seems like everything is air, just empty energy. And they see each person that comes in front of them as coming from and returning to that same emptiness and loved into existence by consciousness, moment by moment. They truly perceive that. But because of the feedback channel situation, and in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases because of these crazy wisdom teachings, they do really, really bad things, sometimes. Now, I should also say that they do miraculously wonderful things most of the time, in my experience. The really, really bad things are rare, but they're really, really bad, okay? So, if I mix a little dog feces into, you know, your hamburger, maybe there's not much there, but (laughs) the impact is pretty noticeable, Yeah, that little bit really counts. So, when I look at the scandalized teachers and look back at my whole record of memories of those people, most of it has been almost miraculous goodness. But if they didn't have the feedback channel and they believed a certain thing about the nature of nature, the bad was like egregious. So, that's another thing. Now, I think there's something else besides the feedback issue and the conceptual issues, I guess we could say, which is the degree to which you do think about what's right and wrong. In other words, the idea of right and wrong, like not taking life, not speaking falsehoods, etc., etc., those are precepts. And we can broaden that. In the modern world, it's complicated, okay? To know what is right and wrong can be very complicated. I'm engaged in research. There are medical ethical issues in the research that I don't have an answer to, but I am concerned about them, and I know who to go to to talk about it. I go to a professional medical ethicist who can help me parse that all out. So the rules, so to speak, or the ideas about what is or is not good conduct, there are some general guidelines and then there are you know, more specific things. I think that going over those rules and thinking that they really matter is a good idea. As I say, that's usually what people think you should do first. is like, well, let's argue about what's right and wrong. To me, sequencing is very important. The first thing is, is the feedback there. If the feedback's there, the person knows what they need to change. Once they know what to need to change, we can show them what mindfulness can do to help them make that change. And the things that mindfulness can't do, that they may need a therapist or a 12-step program for, accountability and support structures, I call them, we can suggest to that person that they also get involved in that. So to me, that's the first thing that we do. But I'm also saying that taking the guidelines seriously does have a place in all of this. To make it more tangible in the Theravada tradition, when you start out a retreat, you go through the five shila, and you repeat them, and you take it seriously. In Zen, when they give these ordinations and they you know, tell you about the shila, they go through the same list of rules, but sometimes they make it into a Dharma teaching about relativity, which is, well, yes, there's this set of rules, but also you have to get to the point where there's not a duality between good and evil. And they'll mix those two things together. They'll give you the rules they, and at the same time count. say, yeah. because they work on a dialectical, but you must also realize they don't count. That's a fucking mixed message. That's a bad idea. Yeah. If I may be so blunt. I understand what they're trying to achieve. I totally understand. And I even think there's some substance to it, but that's not the time to do it or the way to do it. If we're talking about guidelines, we're talking about guidelines. If we're talking about becoming free, we're talking about becoming free. And this mixing, as is done in Zen and Vajrayana, I think is not a good idea. And most of the scandals are in those two traditions. And I don't think that's a coincidence.
0: Interesting. Yeah, if you're going to give a list of precepts, try not to say that they don't actually count at the same time. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, we understand because that's a way of teaching. That's a way of setting people free. But it leads to problems. Okay. So we've analyzed some things that are present, certain beliefs, things that are absent, feedback channels, and you get the combination of things that should be there not being there, and things that shouldn't be there being there. You combine that with the fact that there's a general tendency for flagrant misbehavior, in the top of fields in general, maybe not across the board, but in many areas of human endeavor. And then maybe there's some added factors.
0: Well, for example, what about power? You know, In many of the traditions, the main teacher has real power over people, and not only power in the tradition where the students have agreed to follow the teacher's instructions to the letter as part of their spiritual practice but also, you know, literally power over their lives in terms of their income, their family situations, and so on. There's real power involved, and maybe that's the one that relates to other areas of human endeavor the most, where you get people in situations of power and they start to really misbehave very often.
1: You know, I think it's a cultural thing, the notion that a teacher should be given authority beyond advice for practice. The notion that a teacher would have something to say about who you should marry or what job you should take, I don't see that. I don't see any need for that
0: at all. Right. We see it all the time. but
1: I think it's something that evolved in cultures over time but it really has no place in the world of a meditation teacher. A meditation teacher is like a doctor. There are certain things that a doctor would say that you would listen to, but you wouldn't go to your doctor to get advice. You don't expect your doctor to say, I think you should go into this profession or that profession. I think you should marry this person or that. So I think A culture where the teacher has a role beyond their professional competency, I think that's problematic. So, people that get discouraged have doubt about the efficacy of meditation when they see the flagrant misbehavior on the top. I think that these problems can be addressed and will be addressed as we move forward, as the field moves forward, and that probably in this century, these kinds of problems will go away because people have seen the causes and conditions and taken measures. I think it's also important to remember, well, I think we've said it, these problems historically, as far as I know, mostly occur where the causes and conditions we've talked about are active. So we would imagine that, once again, looking at the big picture, things should improve in this century.
0: Yeah, I think it's fascinating. It's another thing we can see happening Not just in the meditation world, but in our culture generally, where the Me Too movement is arising, where people at the tops of field, particularly men, are getting publicly busted for their bad behavior. And that public busting of their bad behavior is having serious consequences in their career, in their finances, in their life, right? So it's not just somehow a toothless kind of airing of dirty laundry. It really has an impact. And so I think we can imagine this type of accountability rippling out into all parts of our culture, including spiritual or meditation communities.
1: Yeah. So I think I have learned from my mistakes and the mistakes that I've seen around me to where I'm confident that I know what needs to be done here. And so it doesn't lead to disillusionment for me. It's just okay the plane crashed, now we do a logic and evidence-based analysis of why the plane crashed, and then that kind of accident will happen much less. That's my metaphor. And by the way, apropos of plane crashing, I think that the analogy may be even better because usually when a plane goes down, it's because of a concatenation of things, not just one, because they have fail-safes, right? But you get the black swan event of, that's why they're so picky, you know, like if you've ever had a plane where they wouldn't take off because some little piece of the seat wasn't right, you know, it's like, what, (laughs) we have to sit here just to fix someone's seat? What does that have to do with anything? But they know that if everything isn't perfect, You get one improbable event, then you get another improbable event, and then another one, and that might bring the plane down. So you get a concatenation of the factors that we just mentioned. In a sense, it's not surprising at all that there have been these disasters, let's call them. And so maybe another metaphor is, or another analogy I was saying Well, there's complementary forms of egolessness in science and in meditation. And let them learn from each other, okay? Or maybe another analogy would be that spiritual teachers and spiritual organizations need to look at the FAA (laughs) and understand that there's a lot of things that you have to be careful about. Because if you're not careful about all these factors, you can get these unusual events, these disasters. I call it a a disaster when a famous and efficacious and in many ways admirable master has created a scandal. That's analogous to a plane crashing. When a plane crashes, it gets a lot of attention. So... If you make sure that all the things that need to be there are there, and you get rid of the things that cause problems, it's much less likely that you're going to have plane crashes.
0: Now, you alluded to uh, yourself getting some feedback that helped you to avoid plane crashes. Can you unpack that or tell us that story?
1: Well, you mentioned a list of typical ways that teachers go off. (laughs) There's a list that I knew about from the beginning. Watch out for money. Watch out for power. Watch out for sex. There's a Chinese expression. If you see the chariot in front of you crash, you know to watch out for a pothole. So I knew from the get-go what the potholes were. Three areas. Be very careful about money. If people give you money and it's for a certain thing, it's gotta go for that certain thing. It's not your personal money, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Be careful about power. People project all sorts of abilities on you that you don't have. Don't take advantage of that. And the sexual domain, obviously. Someone like me, I was like a nerd in school, very socially awkward, afraid of girls my whole life really but that's really bad when you're in high school you know always nervous and gawky and socially isolated etc now i'm this guru figure and i mean people come on to you it's like wow suddenly i i'm the cool guy i can actually have you know they want me it's obvious not to take advantage of that, okay? So I knew there's three potholes at the beginning of my meditation career. Like just watch really, really carefully those areas. Cause you've seen a lot of chariots hit those potholes and crash. But there's other potholes besides the big three. And one of them I now have seen a lot. And it wasn't in my list. It was number four. It comes after the big three. And I didn't know about it. And no one told me about it. Everyone told me about the first three. It's evident. There's something else that can happen with teachers that you also have to be scrupulously watching or you'll fall into that. <laughs> So that
0: what would, what would that
1: be? Should well, the, I wonder if you could guess, because I, I'm just curious what would come to your mind. Uh, I think you agree on the big three, right? Absolutely. So what's the next on the list, the next likely one that can happen that is not talked about?
0: Well, because of my psychic powers, I know what this is. Of course, you've actually told me this in the past, long, long ago. I believe you're going to say that it is codependency.
1: Yes, that is what I'm going to say. Codependent relationships Yes, that a teacher can get involved in. They can take various forms. And you're in a special relationship with someone. Now, that special relationship might take various forms. It could be a business relationship or administrative, they're doing something for you. They run your community. Or it could be a, a significant other relationship. The person you're in this relationship with is not a peer teacher. But because of the special relationship, they arrogate, if that's the word, to themselves the power of the teacher. They want to have the same authority with students that the teacher has. And because you're in a special relationship with them, you give them that authority over your students. You raise them to a power position with students that is inappropriate, and then that leads to problems. Now that I experienced that myself, I've looked around and I've seen it in other groups.
0: How did you learn about the codependent situation yeah. you had gotten embroiled in? So remember we
1: talked about feedback, right? I had known that you need to keep the feedback channels open. So I was getting feedback from students that things were off because there was someone that was calling the shots when they shouldn't have been calling the shots. And people were seeing that I was elevating this person to a position which was inappropriate. So I was getting feedback from students, but I was ignoring it because I was in the folie deux, folie deux, (laughs) shared psychosis. Codependent relationships are this rabbit hole. That pull you in. I'm not saying I was literally psychotic, but a couple can spiral upwards or they can spiral downwards. And so I was in this hole and I couldn't see it, but at least people could approach me on it. It wasn't that there weren't any channels. So I was getting some feedback, but it wasn't strong enough to pull me out of the delusion. And then um, Jack Cornfield and James Barraze said, hey, come up to the Bay Area. We want to talk to you. And it was about this. And that was it. That's what pushed me over. Pushed me over the edge so that suddenly I could see how deep a rabbit hole i had fallen into.
0: How blunt were yeah. they with
1: you? pretty blunt. Mm. I'm going to paraphrase. They certainly did not use this language. Okay, certainly, because they don't use harsh language, right, ever. (laughs) But my memory of it (laughs) is... (laughs) My memory (laughs) is Shinzen, what the fuck is going on in your community? (laughs) (laughs) or what the fuck is going on with you. (laughs) Something of that ilk, although it certainly was not the F word, (laughs) but it had that vibe to it.
0: (laughs) So the clearest possible signal.
1: Yes. So that very clear signal from peers, combined with the burgeoning feedback that I was getting, thank God, you know, that I had enough openness in my loop to finally see, oh, yeah, now I see. This is what happens. i have been so scrupulous in these other areas, but no one told me about this. So, then I corrected the situation very dramatically. And you know who helped me correct the situation? Who? Bill Hamilton. Ah. Uh... Daniel and uh, Kenneth's teacher.
0: He figures prominently in many stories. He figures. He's the great unsung
1: hero of Vipassana in the Western world. He and I were co-teachers of each other. We were very good friends. And it was, uh, once again, a complimentary situation in that he knew the nitty-gritty of how mindfulness works in the Ubakin Upandita lineage. And I knew a lot about broader Buddhist approaches, Zen, Vajrayana, things like that. And we both shared a science thing. He's similar to you in many ways. Uh, He was an engineer, you know.
0: Although for the record, for the listeners, I am not an engineer.
1: I tend to think of you as an audio engineer. (laughs) (laughs) And Bill was that
0: also. Mm.
1: And you certainly have a science vibe to you, and Bill very much had that vibe. Mm. So, in any event, you know how the classic thing, you break up with your girlfriend and you go stay with your best friend, right? (laughs) So, that's sort of what happened. And in this case, I stayed with Bill and he helped me make that transition, get out of a relationship that was not good And so, um,
0: anyway, that's the story. And so, that's how you found out about your codependent relationship problem in teaching.
1: Yeah, the combination of the building feedback from the students, it was starting to be obvious. And then Jack and James just, like, you know, kicked my ass. And I'm eternally grateful. And it's like, oh, okay, that's it. I got to do something rad here. And I did, and I put a continent between me (laughs) and this other situation. That's why I moved to Vermont, one of the reasons. Mm, Fascinating. So that was that. It all worked out okay in the end, but, you know, they joke about these valuable life lessons that you can't learn except you go through it, and then you learn it. So for me, I would say there's been two big ones One is the story I just told you. And the other is what eventually emerged around Sasaki Roshi. That was like, oh my God, you can be that loving and that liberated and that fucked in your behavior. I would not have thought so. But apparently, that's the case. And that's what then caused me to change emphasis in my teaching.
0: In what way did you change the emphasis?
1: Well, the whole paradigm that I just gave you about here's what needs to be there, here's what needs to not be there. That came out of that. That was my response to that.
0: All right, Shenzhen. Well, that seems like a good place to bring things to a close here. As usual, I want to thank you so much for agreeing to do one of these talks and I really appreciate it. Okay, well, to be continued. (laughs) (laughs) As usual. Thank you, Shinseng. That's it for this episode of Deconstructing Yourself. I'd like to let you know about an upcoming retreat I have available in the first half of 2024. This April, I'll be teaching a six-day residential retreat at Mount Madonna Center in the hills of Northern California. From April 14th to the 19th, I'll be leading practitioners in non-dual meditation techniques, guided meditations, and silent sitting with the group. So if you'd like to spend six days working on deepening your spiritual practice and particularly working on your non-dual meditation with me and a group of interested folks, please consider joining me at Mount Madonna this April. Just go to the deconstructingyourself.com slash events page and follow the links you find there. I look forward to seeing you at the retreat. There will also be a meditation retreat with me coming up this August in Costa Rica. You can find out more about that at the same deconstructingyourself.com slash events page. If you enjoyed the podcast, please recommend it to a friend or talk about it on social media. Doing that helps it find its way to more people who might be interested. If you're moved to support the podcast, you can do that by contributing to the production costs on my Patreon page. That's at patreon.com slash michaeltaft. The money goes to support the recording, production, and bandwidth costs of this program, which are substantial. By contributing to Patreon, You're making it possible for me to continue to create and share these conversations as often as possible. A special perk for high-level contributors is a monthly or even bi-monthly event with me on Zoom where you can ask me any meditation questions you have. I deeply appreciate your support. I also have a number of free resources for you beginning with my YouTube channel. There are hundreds of hours of free guided meditations and videos there, so if you're interested, that's quite a large resource and offered to you completely free of charge. The channel address on YouTube is MWT111, or you can just search my name, Michael Taft. I encourage you to subscribe to the channel and join me each week for a new live guided meditation session. If you'd like to interact with a broad community of people interested in meditation, particularly those who engage with my YouTube meditations, I have a free Discord server called Deconstruct You, That's Deconstruct and then just the single capital letter U. There are a large number of discussion channels there, and it's free, so hop on the server and introduce yourself. And of course, there's the deconstructingyourself.com website itself, which has articles, interviews, and more about meditation going back over 12 years at this point. So be sure to check that out. Beyond these free options, I also have a number of paid online courses to help you grow and develop in your spiritual practice. You can find out about those either by signing up for my email list at deconstructingyourself.com slash or at the site deconstructingyourself.org. I look forward to seeing you in class. The Deconstructing Yourself podcast has always had excellent sound, which is the result of an amazing audio engineer and amazing human being named Stephen McNamara. He's an all things audio person with many decades of experience in producing music and spoken word audio. If you're interested, you can contact him at his website, yogitar.com. That's Y O G I T A R.com. Music on the Deconstructing Yourself podcast is a track by Peter Bauman entitled Crossing the Abyss from his album Machines of Desire. Thank you for listening.